Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to Christmas Eve. I hope you've been nice this year, and that you get some quality time to spend with friends and family doing whatever holiday traditions you hold dear. Myself, by the time you hear this episode, I'll likely be on the road, taking a late-night winter drive through the Canadian prairies to visit family in the foothills, and, of course, listening to terrifying tales the whole way. There are a few Christmas ghost stories that have resurfaced time and again for me over the years, but there's one in particular I remember listening to during the late-night cross-country travels with my parents when I was quite young. I can picture it so vividly still, sitting nestled in the warmth of the back seat as the cold wind whistled by the window drifting snowflakes dancing in the headlights of the car, the only other light 
the subtle glow of the dashboard radio, and the occasional passing car. The tail spinning from the car speakers was called The Shepherd, the story of the pilot of a de Havilland vampire heading home for Christmas Eve in 1957. Flying between northern Germany and Suffolk, England, the plane suffers a complete loss of electrical power as it enters a heavy bank of fog over the North Sea. Low on fuel and running entirely blind, the pilot spies another small plane in the fog, which he presumes has been sent up to guide him safely home. But when he finally makes a shaky but safe touchdown, thanks to the other mysterious plane's guidance, he learns there was no other plane, or other pilot, that he was guided home safe on Christmas Eve by a phantom. I was so used to hearing the story, I never really realized until recently that it very much is in that Christmas ghost story tradition and, as a result, how early that tradition started for me. I never really appreciated either how much I looked forward to that creepy yet heartwarming tale each year as we drove to my grandparents. So this year, as I head out myself, with my kiddo in the back seat, I think it's a tradition that might be worth resurrecting. Something to listen to on the way to visit his grandparents on Christmas Eve. Whatever your traditions are, I hope you find time to enjoy them this year, and may they bring a slight, delightful chill to your spine. Thankfully, we've got three tales this week designed to do just that. But before we dig in, our most frightfully festive thanks goes out to our newest patron, Annalise Wilson. You are the freshly severed head in our stockings bringing us so much surprise and delight. Thank you so much, Annalise. And now, let's unwrap some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Warren Benedetto. Warren Benedetto writes short fiction about horrible people doing horrible things. His stories can be found in anthologies from Scare Street, Black Hair Press, and Erie River Publishing in publications such as Dark Matter Magazine and 365 Tomorrows, and on podcasts such as The No Sleep Podcast, Tales to Terrify, and The Creepy Podcast. He studied evolutionary biology at Cornell University and has a master's degree in film and TV writing from the University of Southern California. When he's not writing, he works as Director of Global Product Strategy at PlayStation where he holds 20-plus patents for various types of gaming technology. He is also the developer of Stay Focused, the world's most popular anti-procrastination app for writers. He built it while procrastinating. For more information, visit warrenbenedetto.com and follow at warrenbenedetto on Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Children of the Night Join me for Warren Benedetto's Something's Wrong with Mom, first published in Synthetic Reality Magazine No. 2, December 4th, 2021.
Jimmy, Grant whispered. He grabbed his sleeping brother's shoulder and shook him. Jimmy, wake up! Jimmy groaned. He opened one eye and looked at the Darth Vader clock next to his bed. It was 3.05 a.m. He rolled over and put his Star Wars blanket up over his head. Go away, he mumbled. Grant yanked the blanket away from Jimmy's face and shook him again, with both hands this time. Jimmy planted a hand on Grant's chest and pushed him away. Stop, I said. You have to get up. Why? Something's wrong with Mom. Jimmy sat bolt upright in bed, immediately wide awake. His heart slammed against the inside of his ribcage. He reached over and turned on the lamp, squinting against the sudden brightness. Again? He rubbed the sleep out of his eyes. Grant nodded solemnly. His lower lip quivered. How do you know? I got up to pee, and I saw her. Where? Grant pointed at the ceiling out in the hall. Up there. Jimmy pressed his cheek against the doorframe, edging just close enough to the opening to see sideways into the hallway outside. Is she there? Grant asked. Jimmy shook his head, then closed the door. He turned to his little brother. For the first time, he noticed that the sleeves of Grant's Spider-Man pajamas were two inches too short. He was growing up so fast. He'd be seven soon. Are you sure you saw her? Yes! Okay, I'm going out. You stay here. Grant's eyes went wide. He shook his head. Uh-uh, I'm coming too. You know what can happen when she's like this. Grant nodded. And you still want to come? Grant hesitated, then nodded again. Okay. Jimmy put his hand on the doorknob, then paused. And you know what to do if... I know, Jimmy. Let's just go, okay? Jimmy took a deep breath, then opened the door. Jimmy stepped quietly down the hall towards their mother's room. The hardwood floor was cold under his bare feet. Grant stayed two steps behind him. He had grabbed the stuffed Spider-Man doll from his bed, which he now clutched tightly to his chest with both arms. Jimmy kept his eyes on the ceiling as he walked. He glanced sideways into the shadows of the stairwell. There was nothing there. Nothing he could see, anyway. A floorboard creaked under Jimmy's foot. He froze, listening. There was a faint rasping sound coming from the direction of their mother's bedroom. It sounded like breathing. Grant reached out and tapped his brother's shoulder. Jimmy drew in a short gasp and spun around. What? What if she won't come down this time? She will. But what if she won't? Jimmy put his hand on his brother's shoulder and looked him in the eyes. She will. Grant nodded. Jimmy turned and continued slowly down the hall. Grant followed. The door to their mother's room was open. The moonlight from the hallway window softened the darkness just enough for them to see to the foot of her bed. The covers were tossed on the floor. Jimmy crept to the door, then turned to Grant. He lifted his fingers to his lips. Shh. He pointed at Grant, then to a spot on the floor, against the wall outside the door. You stay. Grant nodded. He stepped back against the wall, to the spot where Jimmy had pointed. 
He hugged his Spider-Man doll to his chest even tighter. Jimmy leaned into the doorway. His eyes scanned the ceiling. There was nothing there. He relaxed a little and stepped into the room. The bed was vacant. A single pillow was in place on one side. The other side was empty. Jimmy tried not to, but he couldn't help but look at the wall at the head of the bed. It was crisscrossed with paint roller marks from a recent paint job. The work looked hurried and careless, like whoever painted it was more concerned about covering something on the wall than they were about aesthetics. This is all your fault, a voice whispered. Jimmy spun around. It was his mother. On the ceiling. Just like Grant had said. She was pressed into the space directly above the bedroom door. Jimmy had walked right underneath her. She was laying on the ceiling just as effortlessly as a person might lay on the floor. It was as if gravity had inverted itself, as if the world had been turned upside down. But just for her. Her back was against the ceiling. She had her knees drawn up to her chest, with the soles of her feet flat against the wall. Her arms were spread wide like a crucifix. Her fingers were cramped into claws, fingertips digging into the plaster. Jimmy could see the veins in her arms. They stood out against her pale skin like rivers winding through a winter snowscape. Dark liquid pulsed through them, as if her blood had been replaced with crude oil. The same thick black lines branched upwards from the neck of her T-shirt, climbing her neck and spidering into her cheeks and temples. Even the blood vessels in her eyes were black. She was clad in nothing but an oversized Yankees T-shirt— it was worn thin and faded with age. Jimmy recognized it immediately. It had been his father's. Mama? Jimmy said, his voice steady. He held his palms out in a calming gesture. It's all right. It's just me. Jimmy. Come on down now, okay? All your fault! She growled through clenched teeth. Long drips of spittle dangled from her blackened lips and dripped on the floor. Grant's face appeared at the edge of the doorway. Jimmy made a subtle gesture, a quick flick of the wrist. Stay out. Grant drew back into the hall. I know you're upset, Jimmy said. But it's going to be okay. His mother's lips drew back from her teeth in an animal snarl. Her gums were black, too. He never wanted you. A warm flush heated Jimmy's face. He shook his head. Daddy was sick, Mama. And you are too. No! She shrieked. She thrust her legs against the wall, propelling herself across the ceiling until she was directly above Jimmy. The speed and suddenness with which she moved were startling. Jimmy stumbled backward, falling hard on his bottom. The back of his head hit the nightstand. Out in the hall, running footsteps receded into the distance. Jimmy rolled his head sideways. He could see under the bed, past the dust bunnies and lost socks, straight through to the open bedroom door. A tiny masked face was looking back at him. Grant's Spider-Man doll. It was on the floor in the hall. Jimmy rolled his head forward again. He was on his back, looking directly up at his mother as she hovered against the ceiling overhead. 
Her eyes blazed with irrational fury. Every blood vessel in her face oozed with black liquid, fracturing her visage like the face of a shattered china doll. Get out of here, she seethed. Rapid, hot breaths whistled in and out of her mouth. Jimmy climbed to his feet. Mama, I'm going to reach for you now, he said. He slowly raised his arm towards the ceiling, fingers open. I want you to take my hand. No, a small voice said. Don't touch her. Jimmy looked to his side. Grant was standing silhouetted in the bathroom doorway, clutching something small and black in both hands. A gun. It was their father's revolver, the thirty-eight he had kept in his nightstand in case someone tried to break into the house while they were sleeping. It was meant to protect the family. It didn't. After their father was gone, their mother had moved the gun downstairs to a box in the hall closet. She couldn't bring herself to discard it, despite what he had done. It was the last thing he had held in his hands before he died. It was all she had left. Jimmy and Grant weren't supposed to know where the gun was hidden. But they did. Grant pointed the gun up at their mother. The weapon looked huge and heavy in his tiny grip. Jimmy kept his one hand extended to the ceiling. He held the other out toward Grant. He kept his eyes on his mother. It's okay, buddy. You can go back in the hall. She's going to come down. I don't want her to. Grant's voice wavered. He tightened his grip on the pistol. I want her to be gone. Then do it, she spat. What are you waiting for? No, Jimmy said sternly. Grant, don't do anything. Just go out there and let me handle this. Grant put his finger on the trigger and took a step into the room. It's her fault Dad's gone. Not yours, not ours. Hers. It's nobody's fault, Jimmy said. He was sick. He reached his hand further towards the ceiling, almost on his tiptoes. He wiggled his fingers. Mom, come on. Take my hand. Tears spilled from Grant's eyes. Don't. Please. What if you get sick, too? I won't, Jimmy insisted. He turned his head and looked at his brother. Look at me. I'm not lying. Grant looked at Jimmy for a long beat. His brother's gaze was steady and sure. Grant's grip on the gun slackened. His arms relaxed. He lowered the weapon towards the floor. Good, Jimmy said. He looked back up at the ceiling and raised his arms back up to his mother. Mom, we love you, okay? Both of us, me and Grant, we're here for you. Come on. Come down. His mother's face changed. The fury in her eyes slowly flickered out. The black liquid began to recede from her face. The color of her lips faded from black to grayish blue. A sob racked her chest. She reached down from the ceiling towards Jimmy's outstretched hands. Their fingertips brushed, then intertwined. Jimmy gently pulled his mother down from the ceiling she descended slowly, horizontally, as if being lowered by strings. As she came down to his level, 
he turned her and guided her onto the bed. Her head settled onto the pillow. Her breathing relaxed. Her eyelids fluttered, then closed. The bedspring squeaked as her full weight sunk into the mattress. It was over. Jimmy brushed her hair away from her face with his fingers. Her skin was cool to the touch. The black liquid was gone from her veins. Her lips were pink again. Jimmy planted a gentle kiss on her forehead. Then he walked over to Grant and took the gun from his hand. Grant led him. Let's put this away, Jimmy said. For next time? There won't be a next time. Jimmy put his hand on Grant's back and guided him out of the room. He pulled the door closed quietly behind them. It latched with a click. Jimmy bent down, picked up Grant's Spider-Man doll, and handed it to his brother. Don't forget this. Jimmy led his brother back to their bedroom. Grant climbed into his bed. Jimmy pulled the Spider-Man blanket up under his brother's chin. Grant yawned, then looked at Jimmy. You're sure there won't be a next time? Jimmy smiled, then nodded. I'm sure. Grant smiled back, then closed his eyes. He rolled over to go to sleep. Jimmy straightened up and looked down at his brother. Behind Grant's ear, there was a tiny spider web of black veins. A trickle of black liquid leaked from Jimmy's nose. He wiped it away with his sleeve, then lifted the gun. That was Warren Benedetto's Something's Wrong with Mom, as read by Rish Outfield. Rish Outfield is a writer, voice actor, and podcaster. He is the co-host of the Steve audio fiction magazine and his own show, The Rish Outcast. He likes horror, Star Wars, and girls with glasses, and there is no job he cannot be fired from. At least not yet. Thank you, Rish. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Patrick Barb. Patrick Barb is a freelance writer from the southern United States, currently living, and trying not to freeze to death, in St. Paul, Minnesota. His work appears in Humans Are the Problem, Boneyard Soup Magazine, and Not One of Us, among other publications. He is also an active member of the Horror Writers Association. For more of his work, visit patrickbarb.com or follow him at twitter.com slash pbarb. Listen with me, children of the night, to Patrick Barb's Lost Boy Found in His Bear Suit, first published in Pyre Magazine, November 2020. Three days after he went missing in the woods, they found the boy alive. He was sticky with wild honey, and chunks of salmon were smeared around his lips. The fuzzy collar of his teddy bear jumpsuit, the only outfit he'd wear to bed, was worn and matted. But he was alive, and that's what mattered. His parents were supposed to wait back at the makeshift command center the authorities established at the 4-H center. But after a restless night spent holding hands across the gap between two cots made up with army surplus sheets, they weren't going to wait behind. Don't be surprised if he looks different, being out in these woods for that long at his age, Park Ranger Steve told them. The boy played with leaves on the forest floor. One of the EMTs had pushed the jumpsuit's hood with its teddy bear ears off his head. The boy turned at the sound of shoes crunching through the underbrush. He smiled, his mouth opened wide with the effortless enthusiasm that only small children can achieve. Reheated coffee stung his mother's esophagus before passing through her pale, chapped lips. Pain and horror drove her to her knees. Unsure of whose comfort to prioritize, the father rubbed her shoulders, but kept staring over at his boy. The crying child looked more like an abandoned plaything than the smiling sprite who'd kissed his stubbly cheek and called him Dadu. The boy pulled the hood back onto his head. The fabric cast a shadow across the top of his head, coating his eyes in a bottomless black. After the EMTs and park ranger Steve got everyone calmed, they explained to his parents that the wriggling white worms falling from the boy's smiling mouth weren't maggots. They were grubs. Larvae. Hell if we know how we got to him. Somewhat reassured, they walked over and scooped him up in their arms. He was theirs once again, 
their little lost boy found in his bear suit. Each tried to find a tiny hand inside the stitched-on paw coverings at the end of the sleeves, but he growled, teeth snapping, and pulled his hands back further into his mud-caked fuzzy outfit. He wriggled and squirmed in their arms. He seemed stronger than they'd been told to expect. The boy broke free and fell the short distance to the ground. He landed on padded feet and ran. They had to sprint to catch up with him. His parents ran that much harder than the others, perhaps fearing they wouldn't find him again if they let him run too far. But he eventually stopped. After pushing aside some broken branches, they found him standing by a dark cave entrance. A slight breeze pushed the barriers down against the top of his hood. She's sleeping now. Flashlight at the ready, Park Ranger Steve nodded towards the cave entrance. He'd already seen the scat with the bones and bits of hair as they'd made their approach. He'd heard the stories from older rangers, the ones about an old bear sow whose cubs were killed out of season by some hunters. Campfire Tales said she'd take human children to even the score. But that story had been around for ages, details changing with every retelling. The old mama bear, if she'd ever lived at all, would be long dead. Then again, the cave was right there. The boy's parents shook their heads. It was their call and they didn't want to know what was inside. They only wanted their boy back home. Away from the cave, away from the woods. They returned to the jeep. The boy passed out almost immediately and slept between his parents in the back seat. They wrapped him in a foil rescue blanket, ignoring the tightness of his stretched thin skin and the stiff black and brown hairs growing out from under the scrapes and scratches on his tiny body. The jeep's engine growled, then roared. Its tires threw dirt and rocks back behind them. Its tracks, like claw marks, were left behind to show that they'd been there. That was Patrick Barb's Lost Boy Found in His Bear Suit, as read by Chris Johnston. Chris lives with his family on top of Vermont's Green Mountains, half off the grid. Thank you, Chris. Our final tale tonight comes from Joshua Grasso. Joshua Grasso is a professor of English at East Central University in Oklahoma where he teaches classes in all the old literature that inspires his stories. His work has recently appeared in Andromeda Spaceways, New Myths, Daily Science Fiction, and Fabula Argentia. He is also obsessed with 19th century art, cats, and 19th century art about cats. You can follow him at Joshua Grasso on Twitter. Listen with me children of the night, to Joshua Grasso's The Girl in the Glass, a Tales to Terrify original.
We looked at our face in the mirror. Or rather, she looked at me looking at her, even if she couldn't see me. For many years I have looked out of those eyes, abiding my time, saving my strength, waiting to speak. It doesn't have to be like this, I often tell her. You don't have to fight me. Let me in. Let me share your life. In return, I can make you immortal. But unlike the others, she never listens. She has her own ideas, this girl, and she dismisses my words as daydreams, nightmares. She shuts me out. I inspect her face in the mirror. Even the yellow, sickly complexion can't hide the impression of youth. Elsewhere, the signs are more fragile. The sunken eyes and chapped lips. The listless hair that dangles across her ear. Even her delicate lace fichu pales like a memory of second-hand gossip. She tries to smile, to strike various poses of beauty, but the glass mocks each attempt as a pitiful counterfeit of another time, another woman. I watch her address the glass. Am I still pretty, still desirable like this? Will men still vie for my hand, still fill up my card at the ball? Will women still whisper my name with curses as I walk past? Will I still be able to smile back at them, knowing they can never have what they wanted, what was mine by right? Of course you will. Only a fool would think otherwise. Yes, your life is fading, faster than you know, but you'll always be worthy of worship. And I do worship her. Ever since I first came to her body, I felt that I could die here at last, entombed in her fleshy walls like a frozen saint. I have been travelling for so long, for so many lifetimes, just to find her, or someone like her, since I never imagined to find her here, of all places, in the middle of nowhere, really, far from the great cities where I fled out of sheer desperation. Of course, I'm often fooled by a good location and a pretty face. So many lives, and some of them quite powerful. I can dimly recall a few of them if I try. A soldier of some renown, an utterly wretched poet, a midwife, hmm, some kind of politician, an anchoress who thought me the devil. I had loved them all and used them to their dying breath and in time they learn to value the sacrifice. I can no longer remember the original form, just the stray thought that teems with ancient sensations, recalling a voice and a man, I'm almost sure it was a man, at the edge of my sight. Whoever he was, I escaped him and escaped my death. The spell had tossed me from body to body, across countries and seas, in a frantic bid for immortality. That's the one thing the sorcerer never told me when I paid for my chance at salvation. I could live forever, but I would spend every waking hour thinking, lusting, dreaming, and desiring another taste. Or perhaps he did tell me. It was so long ago, and the words scattered like smoke. No matter, I spend my days blissfully ensconced in her thoughts, kissing her naivete and caressing her kindness, though it becomes crueler every day. The more I listen to her, the more I remember what it means to be young, before lust became my appetite and power my modus operandi. She exists like the sun, 
flowers, or even music itself. She has no ulterior purpose except as a light to others. I bathe in this light and feel the old lives slip away. No longer have I murdered those who had betrayed me, no longer forced women into pitiless marriages, no longer turned a blind eye to wickedness and cruelty, no longer feared death like a rival. All the same, I am killing her. My life requires hers to live, and soon there will be nothing left. I forgot the other one's names, they mean nothing to me. But her, my dearest Louise Antoinette, will live forever. I will become her, thinking like her, seeing the world through her eyes, even in other bodies. I may kill you, my sweet, but your beauty will never die. Let that be my gift to you for now, though I'll spend eternity devising others. I knew she would understand if only I could take her aside and explain, and I did try, at first whispering to her, cooing in her thoughts like a lover, but the message got lost in a haze of ballrooms and billets doux, and so I became more aggressive, pushing to the limit of my powers. I visited her in dreams so she could safely dispel what she heard in the morning. There I laid everything out, told her who I was and what wonders we could accomplish. Her lux and my mind, our mind, I assured her. I would leave nothing behind. Just let me in. It would only take a few nights. It would not only be painless, but in time she would prefer it to the scraps of her former existence. But every night I grew weaker, and even today I have to summon upon the last reserves of my will to make an impression. I can't tell what she thinks of it all. Sometimes, with a stray look, I almost think, but I've thought that before. That's the very reason I had to leave the anchoress, why I had to kill her so quickly. Today, she lingers at the mirror longer than usual. Her eyes drink in every blemish and frown in disgust. Disgust of her, my light of lights. She recoils at the idea of fading away like her sister, of becoming a cracked headstone on the wind-blown heath. Life has given her so little at her age. Of course, she has everything she wants, more than I did, more than most women in the kingdom. But it's still a prison, no matter how large, how embellished. Like every woman, she's still looking for a way out, a corner she's never explored buried deep within shadow. I like to think I'm that very shadow, calling out to her, a secret that can rescue us both. From a locked cabinet she removes that buck again. I told her not to purchase it, but my voice was too weak, even less than a thought. A book of spells, bought for a pittance from a travelling scholar, offering a typical ragtag collection. Like most children, she occasionally peers into forbidden places for the thrill of getting caught. I knew she couldn't actually read the words, so it was a harmless exercise. Strangely, I can never get a proper glimpse of the book itself. She always keeps it just out of sight, running her hands over the face and spine. Not that she has anyone to hide it from. Her mother never inquires and her servants are uniformly illiterate. Most days she does little more than thumb through the book and caress the cover, frightened, perhaps, of what she might find. Not today. Today she tries to sound out the words. The first sentence tells me everything and makes me sick. Yes, I know this book, as does everyone with even a passing acquaintance with spellcraft. 
the dark backward, so named for its initial spell, a charm of power. There are only a handful of copies in existence, as most had been burned or are locked away in forgotten libraries. Unconsciously, I start reading the words as she flips through the pages, remembering when the old tongue used to resound in the halls of kings. I read with gusto, scarcely realising we've thumbed through the entire book together. One spell tumbles over another, including spells of ensnarement, spells of changing, spells of knowing, spells of deceit, spells of obscurity, spells of prognostication, spells of lightness, spells of darkness, and spells which had no name at all. I know more than my share of wizard lore, though not enough to be truly dangerous, or to save myself. Nor does she, for all her curiosity. This would remain our little secret, a way to feel wicked without touching the sin. Nevertheless, she stares at the mirror with a look in anyone else I would call devious. Her eyebrows arch with a secretive delight as she turns away, clutching the book to her breast. Louise Antoinette, her mother called. Are you dressed? The doctor is here. She slips the bug under her pillow and cries, I await your pleasure, only to mutter darkly to the mirror, For the last time. She shoves an extra blanket over it for good measure. Then she returns once more to the mirror, her eyes narrowing in challenge, almost as if she discerns a presence beyond the glass. That's when I realise. She knows. She has seen me, either in the mirror, in her dreams, watching her. Or has she been watching me? I remember several times she lingered in the mirror, or said something incongruous out loud. Like that one morning when she whispered, I suppose I should be flattered to have so many admirers. Clearly a seed has been planted which quickly took root with its poison. Every act of goodness now seems tinged with guile. Her sweetness, her innocence are dripping with prurient desire. Soon she would tempt men to her bed, making their eyes stare into my own, torturing me with the ruin of my salvation. I risked everything and laid the promise of immortality at her feet. But what did immortality mean to the young who are destined, in their own minds at least, to live forever? And me? Where will I go? After all I've done for her, is this my reward? Such cruelty in a mind so young. I recall what the anchoress had done so many years ago. I had made her lavish promises as well, told her we could live together, reigning over the entire church, a lowly anchoress no longer. At first she listened, even smuggled in a glass so we could speak. But one day I revealed too much. She saw me, or saw herself as I saw her as she would be once I had her. In response, she starved herself, long weeks which tormented me as I felt her body crumble, a useless vessel that would leave me shipwrecked on the shores of death. She knew I needed her body, and I needed to watch. It was the one thing she could deny me. But not this time. The anchoress was pale and weak, a dried-up husk. Louise Antoinette is divine. She has to be mine, and it wasn't too late. A few more months would have aged her to a fine vintage, but I'll have to make do with less. For even flawed, she's still a beauty, still the vision of myself I toy with in the few fleeting dreams that come to me. How I loved her, even as I loved myself. We would never be apart again.
She addressed herself in the glass, looking deep inside, or somewhere beyond. Tonight I make my escape, to go where no one can find me. Mama will never understand, but it's for the best. There are too many eyes here, too many people watching, especially myself. With a final look of triumph, she balled up her fist and hammered the glass. I watched her crack in two, then three, then endless fragments. My vision faded. Her beauty faded to black. That was Joshua Grasso's The Girl in the Glass, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English, and most likely drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children. And, despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname rhymes with Dopey, but any other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He is the Golden Pen winner for Writers of the Future, Volume 32, 2016, and has fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. You can keep up with it at mattdovey.com or follow along on Facebook and Twitter, both as at MattDoveyWriter. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini. 
with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we conjure up holiday spirits with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 